0: positions of hopelessness and helplessness the government gives them the drugs builds bigger prisons passes a three-strike law
1: Ahoy, ahoy. Poddam America podcast, the God Socialist podcast for stupid children. I am one of your hosts, Alex Patak. Thanks for tuning in. I'm here with my right-hand man, Anders
2: Lee. Anders Lee here on Alex's right.
1: He Anders is carefully stationed to my right, lest he betray me.
2: Do they say if you're a left-handed person, do you say my left-hand man? Yes. Yeah.
1: And it's always polite when meeting someone before figuring out where they stand in your power structure. Ask, by the way, um, no pressure. Which hand do you prefer? I just want to make sure I'm getting everything correct.
2: When you shake hands. Yeah, if you, okay. if,
1: if you if you're like if you're arranging a cabinet, if you're arranging a royal court, you need to know where everybody stands in that in that sense.
2: Yeah, I think. But, yeah. It's often been
1: said the woke movement is kind of like modern day uh, chivalry in a way, and kind of like you just have to think of it like back in the day, hands were in play.
2: Hmm, interesting. Uh, I think that handshakes might be done, because for a while, even before COVID, yeah, for a while people were saying like this is not, I think they may have done an entire 60 minutes segment about why we should... Abolish the handshake. Because why why just, was that? It's just spreading germs, you know. Somebody's got a cold, though you have a cold, just from being polite, right?
1: This sounds like uh, propaganda from people who can't do cool handshakes.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's just a handshake envy.
1: Yeah. You know, like anybody who's like you go to do like a like a slap slap kind of thing, they're like, I w- I went in for the high five, you know, that that whole block. Who do you think runs the Times Magazine Corporation? <laughs> Bad handshake,
2: people. <laughs> well, people, who, yeah, I mean, the, it, I think it is true of the elite. This is certainly true of Trump. Right? That He didn't like shaking hands with the, the common folk. He right? did the
1: power he, grasp. Whenever he had to shake hands, he shook. He'd like grab you and pull you into him. So as to be like, I take all my germs. Oh, a really? whole arm of germs. Trump did that? Yeah, you didn't see that? Like, whenever I know that he would meet like a world leader, he would grab their hand and then pull them into his body as hard as he could.
2: Hmm. Oh, well, world leaders. Yeah. But yeah. not, like, his supporters. No, no. That's what I'm saying. It's like a hierarchy thing. hmm I wonder, though, if if somebody is left-handed, do you just, like, shake with your right hand anyway? Because I've when I've shook hands with people, I always just do the right hand without even thinking, and they they you know go with that.
1: Yeah, it is. I I think it is common practice a right hand hello, we both have hands.
2: Okay, let's so meet that's, in the middle. Is that sort of discriminatory against left handed people, or or maybe not because it's not difficult to to shake hands right? It's easy you got to use can do it. Yep. Yeah. And you got to use, like, right now I am holding the microphone with my left hand uh, because I'm someone who actually tries to, I'm very right-handed. I can't, you know, it's uh, my handwriting is bad enough as it is, but if I write left went to a
1: special school for right-handed boys. <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, I mean, like, you got to use the other hand for something, so it's probably better for left-handed people to have the handshake with the right hand because that, you know... Otherwise, there's too much uh, pressure on the the left hand at all times. As someone who watches a lot of Dragon Ball Z,
1: which is how I introduce myself at parties now, um, it is always a boon, a benefit to have a secret that the other person does not know about. And if yeah. that means we've shaken hands with my right hand, but my left hand is far more powerful than that, I think that could kind of be a big boost to your self-esteem, kind of get you that that big job interview you're looking for or whatever.
2: Right. Well, that's right, because I, you know, grew up with the messaging that your handshake says a lot about you and you have to show that you have character by... I'm picturing your a... dad
1: saying all this shit. <laughs> Anders, we're doing handshake practice again.
2: <laughs> well, my dad actually was, had his, was uh, sort of immune to the handshake uh, wonders of William Jefferson Clinton um who he when my dad worked in public radio they had a a on clinton's last year they they had like some public radio thing at uh, the white house before he got canned uh and bill clinton shook hands with him and he has a picture of it uh and he was immune to his charm because bill clinton is it's he's a handshake artist right he leans in it's like he's making love via handshake you know he, many people he, have said this yeah he works the the purse the handshake-y, Um, and I asked my dad what happened when he shook your hand and he's like he said something to me and I couldn't hear him <laughs> uh, so I nodded and said yes mr. president
1: I was not impressed <laughs> slick Willie tried his finest hand games on me and came home a loser
2: yeah He's the hypnotist, really. But it yeah, it doesn't work on everybody. Uh, but not today, Willie. <laughs> but with I don't know what my real handshake is because I grew up with that messaging. So it's like, oh, I just got to have a firm handshake. So that's what I just do. Uh, I but I don't know if that's handshake. Yeah, but it's um, it's put on. I just do it because that's what I've been told that I'm supposed to do. I don't know what my real handshake is. It's not is.
1: your goofy real handshake self. So? You, you have like a closeted handshake you're
2: saying i i might i don't know it's hard to say what the real handshake is because i know somebody is a comic uh dan perlman who has intention he is unapologetic about having a i don't want to say a weak handshake but a light grip handshake a no grip handshake it, it's, it's pretty uh, weak yeah but he's like i don't like to use unnecessary force and energy on a handshake it's not it's pointless right it's a waste of energy why would i do an
1: excuse to me but you know but that's ultimately more
2: that's ultimately more of an alpha move and more of a high confidence move than just overcompensating like i do and gripping as hard as i possibly can on other people's hands which we're probably not going to do anymore that's true as a coach and
1: dan is an alpha in a way
2: um what are we talking about today? We, 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 we,
1: <laughs> we have on. We are talking about handsha-
2: the handshake of, you know, uh, the, the two uh-huh. hands of labor embracing each other. The, uh, we're talking about that meme that is the black muscular hand and the white muscular hand uh, uniting. Right. And uh, yes, the, but the two hands,
1: the, let's be clear, are not capital and labor. It's labor exactly. and organizing. And right. then capital is a different hand that's not shaking anything. Maybe it's a fist. Capital is wanking
2: off right now <laughs> with the so that the. Can you the picture two that hands,
1: like in the meme? Like it's the two arms, and then there's like just naked right. guy behind, just jerking off.
2: I mean, the sweat and the secretion that has developed between the two workers' hands uh, trickles down and is used as lubricant for the capitalist hand to uh, pleasure itself.
1: Oh my God! It, what is it's? Let's just say the guest name. It's Maximilian Alvarez. <laughs> We're very excited to have him on. We're going to talk about labor in America. That's what. That's all. That's all we have. Yes, to say.
2: and Jake is absent.
1: And Jake is absent. And uh, send him your love. Uh, let's go to the tape. Hang on the computer now. Bring us in whenever.
2: Jacob, why don't you put on a little makeup? Do it again. Start from the top. <laughs> I'm doing a rendition of uh the what is that system of a down? Uh Jake is uh having some health issues right this today. He's under the weather. Why don't we so just I'm say seeing... Jake couldn't be here? <laughs> Jake couldn't be here. Yeah, did Jake up why don't you put a little makeup? That's my You want to
0: okay (laughs) jake's dead he'll be back next week
2: yes thank you thank you for clarifying uh we are joined though by a special guest me and alex are uh maximilian alvarez who is the host of uh, working people podcast as well as the editor-in-chief of the real news network uh thanks for being here
0: hell yeah thanks for having me guys
2: that's so exciting that uh, I remember when I used to watch the real news when I was like a teenager and it was just Paul Jay in his garage, just this like adorable little Canadian man who somehow <laughs> was able to interview like Susan Rice and would politely ask her about the Iraq war. Um, but uh, that that's great that what you, there are a lot of projects that are happening over there. Um, how, how's that been going?
0: Yeah, man. I appreciate you asking. I mean, it's been, um, you know, it's been, it's been a roller coaster for sure. Since I took the job in, in October, I mean, you know, like, uh, every other media company, uh, during the pandemic, uh, you know, it's been, it's been tough sledding. Right. I mean, and we even like a lot of other companies, you know, we got massive funding cuts and, um, layoffs, like right after I started, which fucking sucked. And, um, you know, we've been rebuilding, but I think like really heading in an exciting direction, given the circumstances, um, you know, we're, we're having this conversation a week after I was able to um, go down to Bessemer, Alabama for the Real News Network, uh, talk to Amazon workers and <clears throat> organizers with the RWDSU down there in, in Birmingham, Alabama. I got to interview Danny Glover, uh, who's a Real yeah. News Network board member, uh, about the Amazon Union Drive, and that that interview's out now, and it was is definitely one of the highlights of my career uh, slash okay. life. <laughs> um, and like you said, uh, Andrews, like, you know, the reason that I took the job, like, I was before this, I was working at the Chronicle of the Higher of Higher Education uh, at the opinion section. Hmm. Um, and I was enjoying that job, uh, I loved the people there, and during a pandemic, I wasn't particularly looking to kind of, like, jump ship into the great unknown, uh, right. when so much was, uh, you know, so much is going on, and there's so much precarity everywhere, but what really kind of made the decision for me was what you just said, was, like, all the cool and amazing and brilliant people at the real news who were doing cool, amazing shit under one roof, like, you know like you know like you guys right i've been out here kind of hustling you know as an independent kind of left media maker for many years and um that's kind of just the life that i've gotten used to and i didn't really think that places like the real news still existed in the wild um but when i saw that i was like man you got a former uh lieutenant of security of the Baltimore Black Panther party and Eddie Conway who was a political prisoner for 44 years. Yeah. He now hosts a show at the Real News where he interviews the victims of mass incarceration. Like that's that's fucking cool, right? Yeah. And Eddie is just such an incredible uh figure and he's so brilliant, he's got so much wisdom. So I get to work with that guy every day. I get to work with Stephen Janice and Taya Graham, who have a show called The Police Accountability Report, where they report on police corruption uh, and the grassroots like movement to hold police accountable. Uh, Mark Steiner, radio legend, Jessel Noor, Lisa Snowden mcrae Like, it's just a really great uh, um, and incredible group of people. And we're doing really cool shit. And I hope that, um, you know, people take notice because we're pouring everything we've got into it
1: making real ass news for real (laughs) ass dudes (laughs) right
0: that's our new motto (laughs) can I ask just out of
1: curiosity uh because you know as a former tradesman of the independent political media yourself what's the schedule change like switching over to an actual like company can you still sleep till noon and uh start the kratom day
0: that was literally literally the (laughs) hardest part (laughs) literally the hardest part about making this transition was going from my podcaster um and and writer schedule of staying up till four in the morning and getting Uh, up at yeah like 11 uh to going to like a real back to a real human being kind of schedule like I used to uh I used to work at at you know a lot of shitty jobs, but like this time yeah. ten years ago, I was working as a temp in like factories and warehouses, and I would get up at like four in the morning and go work a twelve hour shift. And like now, I'm like I don't know how I fucking did that. Like I, I yeah. and it's hard enough. Right, I'm not going work. back. I won't go back. <laughs> you can't make me. That's uh, a podcast so it was definitely... harder than
2: I've ever recorded. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, so it was definitely a tough a tough adjustment.
2: Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of tough adjustments, the um, essential workers of the country, our so-called, are uh, now having to adjust to a, what, you know, the, the post-COVID economy is supposedly right around the corner. 10 out of uh, 10 segue. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, but there, we are struggling to segue into the post-COVID economy. It's the, the disease is still rampant. And, and uh, of course, we're speaking today Uh, Just after the passage of the COVID relief package uh, through the Senate, which will um, be kicked back to the House. Uh, But one one thing that has been, you know, circulating on social media is uh, Kirsten Cinnamon, Cinema, excuse me, uh, (laughs) voted. She's a dog. That's important (laughs) to understand. Is that a common dog name, Cinnamon? Because I know one dog <laughs> named Cinnamon, and I always thought that was an original name. But I, I used know. to have a dog named Cinnamon. So nah, this is... I Might mean, as, as well be Rex. Yeah,
0: as someone with the most common dog name of all time, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's a, this is the only. This is the only area with, with in which I sympathize with Kirsten Cinema.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the dog name caucus recognizes her, <laughs> but does not approve of her actions.
2: <laughs> I mean, exactly. I sh- I certainly uh, sympathize with cinema circa a lot of s's are circa 2002 or wherever when she was a uh, sort of a you know lefty green party activist right but something snapped somewhere along the line I don't know how this happens to the point where I mean this is sort of a not exactly a very fruitful uh question or endeavor to try and like psychoanalyze with her inner workings but like what is this genuine you know, the fact that she's voting this down is this just pure calculation and careerism or does she actually believe in you know you gotta uphold the senate rules and, and you know and uphold the will of the parliamentarian and and uh, prevent people from getting a raise or like what do you guys think is going on in that ridiculous mind do you know when she switched yeah, that's hard to. I think it was within. I also the past- think just for
1: the just for the sake of clarity, what well, what everybody's talking about is not only that she voted against a minimum wage raise as a Democrat, but she did it with like a twirl and a thumbs down, like she was slam dunking away the possibility of uh, more money. It was. It's really yeah. you got to watch the video,
2: and then she uh, d- uh, opened an umbrella and floated off right after the. <laughs> oh yeah, but. She-
0: but it's sexist to uh, to mention that uh, right comment on her body language, which is like what basically the establishment telling us it's sexist to trust what you see with your own eyes. Right. Everyone right. saw it. We know we know what it was. We know the statement she was making. And now in the most kind of like cynical fucking fashion, they're trying to weaponize, you know, this neoliberal form of identity politics to shield an objectively shitty person who did an objectively shitty thing from any accountability from the people whom she and her colleagues just fucked over.
1: This is one of the best examples of the playbook, too, because it's not only... You know, uh, if you comment on our, our on our female representative's body language, you're a sexist. Is it or is it not sexist? Because that is a, you know, a whole discussion that all of us get mired in all of the time in every form of media. But it's just that you are no longer talking about the issue anymore the second we start talking about her twirl or whatever. And they're just going to press this button anytime anything you don't like happens until it doesn't work anymore, which I I don't think it's going to stop working anytime soon.
0: I think that's, I think it's a really, really great point. Like there, you know, back when I, uh, in the days when I wanted to be an academic, right? Like the one thing I miss about academia is teaching. Like I loved teaching with my students and uh, I did a lot of like focus on media and politics. And I taught this one class back in 2016 while the uh, election was going on about how american politics became a reality show right and we started trying to kind of analyze what was in front of us by giving it some historical and theoretical context i promise i have a point here um there's a there's an old uh historian named um daniel borstein who wrote a book uh fuck what is it called the image Uh, but it's about a concept that he calls the pseudo event right and, and like you just said, Alex, like what we are seeing here with uh, with Kirsten Cinema is the classic example of what Borstein called a pseudo event, where the actual event, the actual thing that we are all pissed about, which mm-hmm. is working people in this country, even before the pandemic have been fucked over um, three ways from Sunday, like working people are working so far behind everybody else, the deck, it, legally, politically, economically, socially is so stacked in favor of the bosses in favor of the establishment that serves the interests of capital, yada, 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 that working people are really just like fighting for scraps to, to maintain what shreds of dignity this world has still left for us. And a $15 minimum wage is not even close to what we need. And it's not even close to all that has been stolen from us over the years. And yet A Congress filled with like rich people who who have completely lost connection to the people that they're supposed to serve can't even bring themselves to raise that floor even a little bit, regardless of how out of step the current minimum wage is with the cost of living. And then you add, add in the kind of, you know, the horrors of the pandemic, working people are in dire straits right now, and you have these ghouls in down the road from me in D.C., who, who, with such unchecked glee, deny so much to so many so regularly and feel so little about it, that like everyone from your gut, you know why you're pissed off about this. But within a span of like less than 24 hours, the debate has suddenly been whether or not criticizing Kirsten Cinema for this is sexist or not. We have we have moved the shift, we have shifted the, the frame of this debate to the point where now we have this pseudo debate that, that serves the function of taking our focus off the real issue here, and it drives me insane.
1: Not to mention, I mean, the the key thing for this, because in terms of politicians uh, screwing over working people, that's a day-to-day event for them, but the, the, the key, the cherry on top to this entire situation is we just had an election where they all ran on raising the minimum wage 2 months ago what day is it
2: like we
1: this is the only thing democrats care about is being caught in the act and we just did it but they've realized due to uh you know this phenomenon that our internet poisoned listeners are surely familiar with that if they just remind us uh uh they can go back to is the dress blue or white we will forget what we're talking about and no one it doesn't matter what you do anymore we're just dogs at this point i
2: mean it's it's almost as if she did this intentionally you know, because her constituency are the people who uh, like to have this very, you know, sort of uh, uh, false flag almost sort of debate about, you know, uh, decorum and and uh, was a micro- false flag debate. <laughs> Microaggressions. who planted the points. Yeah, I mean, it, well, I do want to talk about so um the fifteen dollar minimum wage, right? That that's. Uh, it's a goal, I guess, that, you know, Sanders ran on, Biden adopted it. I'm not obviously I'm for it, right. Uh, but if you were to peg the minimum wage to inflation, and this is what you know when when Republican politicians say like, Oh, I used to work on, you know, $6 an hour, I was like, Okay, what year was that uh, you want to adjust your wage in 1972 for inflation, it would be with $25 an hour or something like that. Um, so it's still way behind inflation. The Proposed, Crazy like, how
1: often that point is made, by the way, for how easy a riddle that is to solve.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. And even like if you if you um avoid focusing on like the obvious um kind of ridiculousness of, of that statement, the thing that really sticks with me, it kind of going back to your, your original question, Anders, like, is this is this genuine or is it cynical, right? And, and there's really no good option here, right? Yeah. Like, if you have these politicians saying, oh, yeah, I made $6 an hour and it made me a better person. It's like, motherfucker, yeah, that would be like earning $25 today. You're making our fucking point. So then the real question is, are you doing that to be a cynical shithead who is in the service of companies and corporations who want to keep labor uh, down and want to pay working people as little as possible? Or... Are you that fucking stupid? And are, are all the people that you work with that fucking out of touch that you can't even calculate, um, you know, the contradiction within the statement that you just made? There's really no good option there. I don't know which one I would prefer. I
1: genuinely <laughs> believe it's the second one for most members of Congress. And the, the distinction that they don't make is I made six dollars an hour and it made me a better person. And now I am a member of Congress and I make six figures. And that is not <laughs> what happens for most people. There's not like a hard time you can laugh about later. You just live there.
2: Well, and it's 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 baffling to me because the other argument is like, oh, well, if we raise the minimum wage to $15, there are or teenagers, right, who are uh, dependents. So they're in high school and they're going to be ma- all of a sudden making $15 an hour. Like that whole notion that you would say that, undermines the entire idea of capitalism right when you get a job and you get a wage you do not they don't ask you like oh well what are your expenses right that's not how the system works that's not how it's supposed to work anyway right why can't
1: we all just be at the top of the pyramid if all (laughs) the base of the pyramid was at the top with me there wouldn't be a problem i don't see what the problem is
0: well i mean in regards to the pyramid thing right i mean just to just to kind of I know that, like in a lot of ways, we're we're preaching to the choir, right? I mean, people who listen to Poddam America like already know this, but it's worth underscoring, right? That we're not just talking about um, the ways that advancement for working people has stalled for so long, and there are a lot of factors that go into that, right? Um, the decline in unionization, the the kind of coordinated, systematic, decades-long attack on unions themselves, uh, from the culture industry, from politicians, from um, companies, yada, yada, yada. We can also talk about, um, you know, yeah, like what, what we're talking about now, right, like how politics politicians have have worked to uh depress wages and and um not keep them up with inflation or cost of living right i mean essentially we're still living in alan greenspan's fucking like world right where he said like creating insecurity for workers is good for quote the economy like that is what the system wants Mm -hmm. uh, because it creates this standing army of um you know uh just precarious workers who will subject themselves to whatever conditions um the bosses uh create because we have to to make a fucking living we have to to put a roof over our heads the point that i'm making though is that we have that worker side of it but at the same time that all that has been going on Um, The 1%, the ruling class, whatever you want to call them, has been increasing their power and influence, consolidating it, not just in the U.S., but worldwide at the same time. These two things go hand in hand. Like if you look at, God, there's a great graph. I think it's from the Economic Policy Institute that shows, right, the graph of um, kind of the uh, uh, union density in the United States and the share of uh income right and and there are other graphs that show like union density and like the overall share of wealth in this country at around 1980 when reagan took office and he broke the patco strike and it was then declared open season on unions those two lines go in completely opposite directions and we are still uh living within that trend the lower we go the less share that we get of the value that we create uh, the more of that value has gone to the top 1%, the more they have used that consolidated wealth and power um, to shore up their hegemony and to continue fucking overworking people, right, this is what class war looks like and I know that everyone feels that in their gut but I just really wanted to kind of highlight it that that is, that is the context for everything we're talking about from Kirsten Cinema to Amazon. Um, it's all part of a kind of endless class war that I think for most of our lives in our generation we were told like it wasn't happening, right? And now after the Great Recession, I think more people realized, oh shit, you know it, it is, right? And we're, we're we're very far behind.
1: This last year especially, right? Uh, yep. Th- we live in the crucible. This is the test. You get Kristen Cinema's going out there voting their feelings with a big thumbs down on the, this minimum wage thing, because there is no fear of working class politics right now. Even in a situation where we've be, all been forced into our homes, 500,000 Americans died and the billionaire class like made what? Like 20% additional uh, 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 revenue to, to their wealth. You know, some obscene number, just billions and billions of dollars added to the top of this thing. That's all this money is just getting buried underground while everybody dies, how much pressure as a society, can we cook up right now before it follows through to the very insulated political core? And it is what keeps me up night. Cause I, I don't know how to reach these people.
0: Well, and like, if you bring in Amazon to that discussion, right. Uh, just to really hammer home your point, Alex <clears throat> is um, Jeff fucking Bezos, right. The founder and current CEO of Amazon. He said he's going to step down in like the summer, whatever. Um, he increased his wealth by over seventy billion dollars with a B in twenty twenty alone. Right? I mean, like just just that is a billion dollars is more money than any of us are gonna see in our lifetime, right? It's mm-hmm. as it's as astronomical. Uh, for us to conceive of as the size of the universe, then you multiply that by 70, then you tell you realize that that is just what he made in the last year. Right. I mean, it, it really is. Um, I think it's impossible to really conceptualize with the, the limited human brains that we have, just how disparate right the power, wealth, and influence um is between people like Jeff Bezos and companies like Amazon and the rest of us who are doing what we can to survive.
1: That yeah, is I, a fun game, right? Take a number you can't imagine, multiply it by 70. <laughs> <laughs> ah.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean I i heard you say that on uh podcast recently and I just was like that must be a mistake and I looked it up it up 75 billion dollars for one guy in the past year. It's insane. Uh, and that's why you know, uh, I think this is was a couple years ago. Uh, the Amazon workers nationally, uh, he was able to to raise it, or is pressured to raise their wage to fifteen dollars an hour, and that was like a, a nice thing that everybody sort of applauded, right? But there, it seems like there is some sort of a, a, a little bit of a resentment when uh, Amazon workers, especially in Bessemer, hear that, right? Because Uh, that's still not enough money um and there's a lot of other conditions that uh have have um galvanized them to 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 unionize that the 15 dollars minimum wage is not or wage is not ameliorated uh what are some of the reasons that they are now voting um to to join a union
0: right well i mean you know just um i guess even even to go back to that why did Amazon raise its wage to 15 in the first place? Because story after story had been coming out for years about the horrifying conditions in their warehouses and not just, you know, like the the conditions that their warehouse workers were working under, but that, that really was the focus. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, we saw all the stories of Amazon workers. Uh, I think the one, the story that broke was like Amazon warehouse workers in the UK having to piss in bottles because um, they could not really take a break to find a bathroom because mm. Amazon has this really, truly dystopian um, kind of surveillance apparatus uh, yeah. that it itself has developed. And that it's also just a kind of quick footnote. Amazon is also selling surveillance technology to law enforcement, right? Jesus. Amazon is not just the e-commerce um, you know giant that we think it is. Amazon, this is one thing that I've been trying to stress, I guess, like along with trying to get people to see you know, just how rich jeff bezos is i've been trying to emphasize just how influential amazon is as an entity right um because it's not just e-commerce right it is cloud storage it is surveillance it is government contracts it is international right there's a lot what however big you think amazon is double it or triple it right because that do some digging into the things that they are doing it's not just putting like little alexas in our houses you know it's also creating like entire smart houses and smart towns and places like southern california where the level of surveillance is the stuff of nightmares. It's the stuff that we were told in movies growing up that we should be afraid of. And yet we are living comfortably with it, or we are living with the kind of realization that we can't do anything about it. And that's why I think, um, you know, workers unionizing is such a significant um, issue of, of democracy, right? Because Amazon, is uh you know it has more power and influence over our lives than most entities whether you're talking about the government or the market right it is and and like alex was saying especially after the COVID 19 pandemic which basically just catalyzed the process that was already kind of in going on where you know we've seen it small businesses have been wiped off the table so many of them so many kind of industries that depended on kind of in-person customers whether it be movie, um, you know, uh, cinemas and stuff like that have tanked, right? And Amazon has been one of the biggest beneficiaries. It has been able to kind of absorb more of the economy into itself, like this great blob, right? That that really, like I said, extends to so many areas of our lives. And yet, even though this thing, this entity has more power over our lives than most other entities we have virtually no say over what Amazon does or how it does it, right? And the, that's where the real that's where the kind of long-standing American ideology of the divide between market and government really kicks in, mm-hmm. because people don't call that government, even though it has a governmental influence over our lives, right? right. It, it 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 shapes our abilities and expectations for what we can order, uh, where we can work, um, when we're being watched. Um, so so on and so forth, right? The, the the culture that we consume through Amazon services, yada yada yada, but because it's part of the quote private market, we don't feel like we have any right to claim that that we should have a say in what Amazon is doing. But workers uh, on uh, in the rank and file unionizing at Amazon facilities is uh, part of that struggle, right? It is a it is a struggle for workers to have. The fundamental right to a democratic say in their own working conditions, right? They they should have a say. All workers deserve to have a say in the conditions they live and labor under. I mean, we spend most of our goddamn lives at work, and yet we feel like we have no ability to tell, you know, like uh, the bosses or these companies, like, hey, you know, you're actually like really dehumanizing people, and that shouldn't be the case. It just it it's 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 a part of our brain that has been systematically taken out um, through cultural and ideological air conditioning for centuries and this is when it really starts to kick in but unions and the labor movement have been pushing against that for a long time and that is kind of really where I think a lot of the excitement a lot of the fervor is coming from and I heard it from these workers and these organizers when I was talking to them you know because they weren't just focusing on the $15 minimum wage at Amazon right they they did say it's like well Amazon only raised this wage because it was coming under such fire for its right. horrible working conditions. But right now the $15 that Amazon has given us, is still below the industry standard. It's still not enough. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, they, they did talk about that. They obviously talked about the benefits that um, they, that Amazon says it gives to workers, Um, But we can talk about that in a bit. Those those benefits in a lot of ways mean nothing because Amazon has such high turnover, because Mm -hmm. it breaks its workers down um, and and pushes them so hard that so few of them can stay on long enough to actually get those benefits um, in any sort of meaningful way. Um, So we did talk about that. But beyond that. You know the workers there are very, uh, they're very cognizant of the fact that, like, you know, this is this is much bigger than that, right? This is uh, a fight that is connected to the labor struggle in the South and the tradition thereof. It's connected to the labor struggle, um, you know, around the country and worldwide. And it is a, it is a fundamental issue of democracy, right? The ability of working people to say, you know, like we make the world that we live in, you guys just scoop off all the profits. We should have more of a say in how this system is built, how it's run, um, and what it does to workers like us. Sorry, that was a long, that was a long rant.
2: No, no, that was great. I mean... Yeah, uh, I definitely want to, to, to zoom in on sort of the, the labor struggle in the south that you mentioned, because that's uh, a very interesting region for a lot of reasons, but um, historically that has, in, especially in Bessemer, there, there's been a lot of uh, struggle there. If you read um, Robin G. Kelly's Hammer and Ho, I believe that was a site of uh, some, some labor struggle with the, the Communist Party in, in the uh, 1930s. Um, but now the South has really become sort of uh, a place for manufacturing to move, right? We think of, uh, I, I remember when I was 12, we moved to uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, and there was a, a Ford plant there that was kind of like the base uh, hub of, of industry there. Uh, it was Union. Uh, and I remember hearing a couple of years after I moved there, "Oh, oh, it's going to be moving the Ford plant is, is packing up and going away. Was, and I assumed like, Oh, it must be going to Mexico. Uh, no, it was going to Kentucky uh, because of the union, right? St. Paul's a union town. Kentucky is not a union state for the most part um, Volkswagen a few years ago, got a deal to go to Tennessee. Uh, they, they negotiated something with the governor and the, the condition for them building the, the Volkswagen plant in Tennessee was that they had, and this is, by request of the government, they had to agree to not let a union form at the plant as as a condition of of building a plant there. Um, So can you talk about like how that has increased the sort of the industrialization in the South over the past couple of decades uh, and how the workers there in some respects are sort of starting to reach a breaking point where that the anti-union propaganda isn't working as well as it used to. And uh, we might be at the uh, precipice of, of a serious shift on the relationship between labor and capital in the South.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah. I mean, and just a, a kind of quick kind of um, follow up on, on that point. Um, Cause I think it's, I think it's a really important one. And it's something that we've talked uh, to a number of folks about on, on my podcast, working people, right. You know, I remember, I think I did a bonus episode recently with Peter Eichler. Um, who's a scholar who studies kind of working class, communities in new england right and and kind of like formerly industrialized kind of towns in places like um oh shit this is a little town in rhode island that he talked about but but used to be more of an industrial Kowal. town co right <laughs> and and um you know like uh like a lot of places in the rust belt right um you know the 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 main kind of I think it was textiles, right? You know, like the main industry there picked up and moved and left kind of destruction in its wake. But where did that, where did those operations move, right? They didn't move to uh, third world countries, quote unquote, yet they moved to the South, right? Because the South has been an um, anti-union, anti-regulation stronghold for US companies for a long time, right? It has almost been kind of like the way station of uh, on the way to kind of, um, you know, exporting uh, operations to, uh, you know, country underdeveloped countries where workers can be exploited even more, where labor costs are even lower, and where there are fewer protections for workers, uh, including in places like Mexico and South Asia, and so on and so forth, right? So yeah, the South has served that purpose. And that is not by accident. That has been mm-hmm. that is a system that has been created over over many decades. Um, But, you know, the the, the other point that I wanted to make before I kind of really um, dig into your question, Andrews, is like, the point about Kentucky is an interesting one because I think it connects to this, right? Because there have been some pretty high-profile union drives in the South um, and pretty high-profile losses, right? There was, um, you know, like like the auto workers one. There was um, big losses in at Nissan in Mississippi, Boeing in South Carolina, and Volkswagen in in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. But light, and and in the same way, in Kentucky, there is actually a proud kind of. Worker and union tradition in Kentucky, right. but it's with industries like the auto industry that do not have the kind of major role in the economy that they used to, which includes coal and includes, yeah, like a lot of steel working in kind of the cities like Louisville, mm-hmm. right? And there still are kind of, you know, union, I've, I've, I've talked to some good steel workers in, in places like Louisville, but to your point, it's like, um, Those industries do not have the kind of centrality in our political economy that they used to, that used to give workers more of a leg up. They had more leverage because these industries were more um, crucial to our economy, whether that be coal or auto working, right? You know, that's not the case anymore. With Amazon, that's different. Amazon, as we just said, has become very central to the functioning of our political economy. And not only Amazon itself, but the fulfillment center in Bessemer has become a very crucial point in Amazon's kind of vast network of operations. Um, And and that's that's built into the story of Bessemer itself and this facility. I, I went to that facility, right? It's like kind of in the middle of nowhere. Um, and it's massive. It's like multiple no. football fields stacked on top of each other. And it sits on the site that used to be uh, where steel mills were, where, where the steel workers mm. had a stronghold. Um, and, and Bessemer itself is a is a place that has been ravaged by deindustrialization, right? Birmingham and Bessemer, that whole area used to be, you know, back in the early 20th century and before, like they were big strongholds for steel. Steel and iron ore mining, um, or sorry, steel manufacturing, coal and iron ore uh, mining, um, but but again, like like with Kentucky, those those kind of industries, the more that they have declined, um, and the more that kind of industrial operations have folded up and moved elsewhere, or just folded up entirely, the workers there have been left to kind of you know fend for themselves with the opportunities that are available, which for a long time have been very little. Long time have been service industry work. Um, you know, and now with the gig economy, there's gig work, right? But but you know, and this is the this has been the case in the kind of hollowed out uh industrial towns in the Rust Belt as well, which is why places like Amazon can come in there, they can say to this uh majority black, um, majority kind of working class uh area, oh, we're gonna give you fifteen dollars an hour, which is way better than what you know you guys are used to. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's still like if you're comparing like, you know you're comparing it to what it should be it's still way far behind you know like what working people in Bessemer and beyond really deserve they and I guess like you know you crumbs. mentioned
1: the breadcrumbs have yeah. improved for the new new uh build of uh corporate wage
0: slavery yeah pretty much um and and you know I guess the the one thing I really wanted to stress and this is this is like a quick aside but I think it's kind of doing it in it, it we're doing it right now right one of the things that I really want to say to people that I've been like so encouraged by, right, and so, and and it's really made me feel um, like I have like a, a purpose here, right? Is is I've been so encouraged by the kind of um, effort, the collective effort of great independent media um, and and great kind of labor beat reporters, kind of swarming to give this issue the coverage that it deserves and give people the information the context and the voices that they need to understand the significance of this union vote and what it means for the South and for all of us. Right. And in that vein, you know, I, I studied like, you know, radical politics and labor history, like in Mexico and in parts of the U S but not the South, that's not my area of specialty. So I've been fortunate enough to be able to rely on the amazing work of people like, Robin D.G. Kelly, who you mentioned, Um, people like Emily Gindelsberger, who worked at uh, an Amazon Fulfillment Center and wrote a great book about it called Mm -hmm. On the Clock. Uh, Alex Press at Jacobin had an incredible uh, interview with Michael Goldfield that gave some really great context to this. Uh, Luis Feliz León has done great reporting. Kim Kelly, we love her. She did great reporting down there with A More Perfect Union. And even beyond that, right, you know, like uh, Chris Brooks at Labor Notes has written a lot of stuff about unionizing in the South that has really helped me. So have Strike Wave, a really great uh, labor publication, Chris Lagrange at UCOM Live, Lauren Gurley at Vice. I say this to say, there is a wealth of amazing people out there bringing this coverage that we used to never really have in this country, mm-hmm. save for a few, uh, you know, people holding down the labor beat like uh, Stephen Greenhouse or Sarah Jaffe, right? But now right. we have more people to give us that information, um, and it's a really beautiful thing to be a part of that, and for workers to see media, you know, in 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 this way, right? When I was down there you know, they they were very excited that that now, you know, for these union organizers who've been around for a long time, right, they're not used to having this much uh, attention on them, right? They're not used to people like they're being this invested in their struggle. And that, you know, you, you asked me earlier, Anders, about like the kind of state of the labor movement in general, that's, that's one crucial part, right, is that there is more of an interest there is more of a shifting kind of cultural sympathy for unions and working people I think even though union density is at its lowest um, in in like half a century which is bad and we have a lot of work to do there public support of unions is, is like at its highest in that it, it's at the highest that it's been in a long time right right because we are living in the society that the Reaganites wanted to create, right? The mm-hmm. society in which organized labor has no power, working people are, um, you know, these, these vulnerable, um, you know, movable, uh, precarious, like, um, you know, beings that can be shuttled from here and there. Um, this is the world that that ideology created. It may have sounded nice in the 90s and the 80s, Um, Right. But this is the reality. Right. It's it's the reality of a few people holding all the wealth, all the power and the rest of us being this kind of free floating army of uh, uh, overexploited, surveilled, underprotected task rabbits um, who have no safety net and unions. um, You know, I think there's a lot of invigorated interest in unions because it is and has historically been a union has been that mechanism for workers banding together and for workers having each other's back and workers saying that like collectively, we are not going to take your shit anymore. We know what we are worth and we are going to kind of fight for what we deserve. That's what I see happening in Bessemer. Yeah.
1: It's kind of exciting because um, like we were talking about earlier with the minimum wage vote, it can, it can feel really easy right now to feel lost in the woods as to where political power is in this country, like six months ago, we did an episode on neo-feudalism. And people kind of thought that was out of nowhere, didn't understand why. But if you look at like something like Amazon, like how to make Amazon not treat people who work there like they are cows, you know, where you go to work and it feels like you're stuck in a Home Depot warehouse, uh, kind of lost looking for the bathroom for 12 hours, then you get to leave. Um, Despite the fact that they are as big as a state and they have an economy, it's a soft power as influential as a state. They do not, and this is the biggest thing. If you work for them, it feels like you are more of a part of Amazon than you are a part of America. Like America Uh doesn't tell you when (laughs) you get to pee. That's not. But you don't get a broadcast for that. Although there was a moment where Trump was texting us, where it was like, man, this is very good. But uh, that's (laughs) Um, even even though you are part of that, they are still uh, uh, the decisions that they make are still decided in politics on local levels on like a labor level. And if you can organize, if you can take the people who actually make the company go and and push them together and give them directed purpose and and just uh, make a community effort out of it, you will affect politics in a, in a more real way or as real a way as someone who actually is an elected, you know, politician. It's not neo-feudalism. It's still capitalism.
2: Yeah. Well, One of the things that like, I mean, I think priority number one right now is supporting uh, union efforts in places like Bessemer and and getting as many Amazon warehouses unionized as possible. Uh, But step two, I really think is not sort of the um, trust busting that some people are suggesting that, you know, we just have to break up Amazon into smaller firms. I really think it should be nationalization. Uh, that should be on the table because it is so enormous as we've been talking about. It, yeah, it's basically its own state, right? Uh, you, I don't think we can go back from that. It's either we we let it keep increasing and, and this private power increase or we take it over and uh, use it as sort of the public utility that it's already been become. But but, but we put that into, into public hands. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Mike,
0: the... oh, sorry. Go no, ahead. go ahead, go ahead. Well, I just got I got so excited by that point because this is something that Danny Glover said to me when I interviewed him, right? It's cuz he said like he's like, you know, if you take the fact that 85% of Amazon's workforce in Bessemer are, are black, mm-hmm. right? He's like unionization is actually kind of a a and if you also take in in into, um if you if you also take the the like we were talking about the amount that Amazon has grown during the pandemic, Um, this is also an issue of redistributing resources downward, right, in a way that the government has failed to do for so long. And I think that's another really important shift that the organizers and workers in Bessemer are pushing, right, is that they are showing that unionization is a community issue. Like I said, it's a it's an issue of democracy, but it is also an issue of, um, redistributing those resources back to the people who need them. Because take what we were just talking about a couple minutes ago, take how much money Amazon has made in uh, during the pandemic, how much money Jeff Bezos himself has made. That is money that has come from us. That is money right. that has come from the people um, to buy these things, right. And to pay for these services, all of that like kind of collective uh, wealth of the population has been siphoned up to a very small number of people. Imagine if we did do something like nationalize it, right? I, or, or I guess what I'm saying is that for people who maybe balk at the notion of nationalizing Amazon, just table that for a second. Just think about it in terms of the wealth that we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. All the wealth that people have pooled into Amazon over the course of the pandemic and where that wealth has gone and where it currently sits and what that wealth is doing and whom that wealth is serving right now. Now, imagine there was a way to take all that wealth that we, the consumers, and that the workers who make Amazon run created, and we were able to redistribute that back into the community. That would be more of a a, a kind of shot in the arm, like investment in our communities than like anything that's currently on the table. And yet, again, it's just this massive, obvious thing that we do not even consider a possibility, let alone like something even worth thinking about. But that is really what what we should be talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, I do want to talk
2: about also, you had a great interview with uh, Jennifer Bates, who's a worker at the, the warehouse and in, in, or the fulfillment center, excuse me, in uh, in Bessemer, and uh, as well as a, an organizer, she's uh, seems like she's very skilled at uh, sort of beating back the the talking points from uh, these people who have been hired by management and uh, as you mentioned the the workforce, the, the wage workers at the at the fulfillment center are overwhelmingly black. The management is overwhelmingly white but the people they've hired to come in, are also black but uh it seems like jennifer and some others have actually been really successful at uh during these captive meetings which case people don't know that you you force the the workers uh at a at a workplace that's considering unionization to sit on and and sit in these meetings where they just go uh point by point through union anti-union propaganda um but what are some of the ways that she has been able to, with the help of other union organizers, really uh, inoculate, which I think is a really important process of, of unionization, inoculate the the workers or her, her co-workers uh, against these anti-union talking points and, and strategies?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a great question. And, um, you know, I guess just to, the, the, the obvious answer um, that I would say uh, is that you know, folks should really go listen to that interview with Jennifer. She's done a lot of great interviews. Um, I've got another interview coming out with her and Daryl Richardson, another worker there in Bessemer at the Real News Network, where they talk about this kind of stuff. Um, and so they, they put it better than I ever could, right? But I think that, yeah, the question of inoculation has been really important, right? And this is where the union and um, workers like Jennifer and Daryl who were, who were among the group um, that reached out to the union in the first place, right? That's another anti-union narrative that Amazon's trying to push, right? right. It is telling its workers, we don't need this outside third party coming in between us, right? right? We can handle our problems ourselves. And workers have been, like Jennifer, have been rebutting that and saying, first of all, we have no fucking relationship, right? You know, you don't listen to us. You tell us what to do and you don't listen to us telling you why that doesn't work. And if if it goes on long enough, you just fire us, right? That's not a relationship, right? (laughs) Um, That's a dictatorship. Um, So they've been rebutting it that way. But they've also been saying is like, the union is not a third party. The union is us. We're the ones who got together uh, because a lot of workers at, I mean, you know, a lot of workers in this fulfillment center um, have come from outside of Bessemer as well, or moved to Bessemer to work there, right? And 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 um, you know, I think that's another thing to really underscore the significance of this drive is we are talking about a fulfillment center, which is a warehouse. They just call it a fulfillment center, so it doesn't sound as bad. Um, a fulfillment center with 5,800 workers. That is that that is really fucking big, right? I when yeah. I was working at warehouses, like you know, we were we were a, a couple hundred, and that's it. And we were not being surveilled nearly to the level that Amazon is. We did not have to travel nearly as far in our massive warehouses as Amazon workers do. So I don't, I can't even understand how workers like Jennifer, who are older than me, are able to do that yeah. work, right? But the fact is that. Um, You know, workers like Jennifer and Daryl have worked in unionized workplaces before Mm -hmm. they came to Amazon, they started working, they started experiencing all those things that we were talking about. Right. Um, The breakneck workloads, the top down surveillance, these decisions from management that like had no input from workers themselves, including kind of measures to protect workers from COVID-19 and Mm -hmm. the so-called hero pay that Amazon offered its workers for like two fucking months and then cut them off immediately without any like real notice or input from workers. They just Jeez. took that money away from them. Th- those and they are the ones it- they
1: were heroes.
0: And right. then after that,
1: you know, they were just uh, back to guys who work in a warehouse.
2: We can be heroes just for one day.
0: David <laughs> really good. Well, and, and, um, you know, Adam and Nima at citations needed actually had a really great episode on the hero pay. Uh, uh, grift, right? Mm-hmm. Because they they pointed out <clears throat> that there's a reason companies like Amazon called it hero pay and not hazard pay, because hero pay makes it seem like it's a benevolent way of the company recognizing the sacrifice that workers are making, but it it does not acknowledge where what what they are sacrificing or where that sacrifice is coming from. It is coming from the hazards of going to work, right? Because that would put that would put the, the burden on Amazon, right? Um, so they called it hero pay and everyone fucking bought it, right? Except not the workers didn't and the workers who got screwed over, but it was it was hazard pay. Workers deserve it uh, like they deserved it, you know, a year ago during the pandemic, but companies like Amazon just took it away, right? And, and the reason I bring that up is because that was just another example of management uh, making these unilateral decisions uh, and just telling workers like that, there's another one where they said, like, you can't have your phone at your station, right? And and they, they basically gave people no time to kind of adjust to that. It was just one night, no phones at your station. If you have your phone out, you get fired, right? So it was the breakneck workloads. It was the the surveillance the time off task shit um you know people trying to find bathrooms and coming back to their station have managers say you spent 10 minutes in the bathroom like well what if you have food poisoning right what if you have like what if you have the runs that you're a human being yeah and and amazon is actively telling you we do not recognize your humanity if you go to the bathroom more than we think you should you're fired right and workers were like well this fucking sucks right i am I'm not being treated like a human being, I'm being treated like a robot, which is a line that I've heard from a lot of workers, is we get treated like robots. Um, and and so these workers, especially ones who had worked in a unionized workplace before, started getting together. They started talking, they said, I think we should bring in a union. And they started looking at, at uh, options. They reached out to the RWDSU, the Retail Wholesale and Department Store Union, uh, the South Council down there, uh, President Randy Hadley, who's really great, I could listen to that guy talk for all uh, for days. Uh, Big Mike, who people have seen uh, down there, he's a poultry plant worker with the RWDSU, who is now a lead organizer down there at the South Council. They reached out to these uh, to this local, brought him in to talk about the things that they were experiencing, and then they they started the long process of this unionization drive that we are in right now, where workers are voting. They've been voting since early February and the vote counting begins on March 29th. Um, but yeah, I mean like, you know, it it, 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 I really can't put it better than people like Jennifer and Daryl and others have when they describe these working conditions and like how hard it is on your body, mm-hmm. how hard it is on your mind. Like Jennifer, one thing that really stuck with me is Jennifer talked about going to work sitting in the parking lot and seeing people right. kind of filter into Amazon and just the men the described in such painful terms, the process of trying to psych yourself up to get out of the car and go back in for another day. Yeah. Like it doesn't have to be that way. You shouldn't right. have to fear going into work uh, a thing that you have to do to put a roof over your head. Right. You know, it can be different and workers there, I think know that. And, and Amazon is trying to really remind not only those workers, but workers everywhere know it can't because we don't want it to be different. Right. I mean, yeah, that was the thing that
2: really struck me about uh, your interview with her. Uh, you know, number one, the this, the the amount of time that it takes to just recover from a work week there. She needs an entire day to just get her body uh, to be able to do anything with her, her remaining time off. Um, but it seemed like another thing she was really talking about that struck me was just yeah that that humanity being able to be treated like a person right which um you know and that made me think of jobs that i've had where like yeah it's still wage labor it's inherently alienating and exploitative and but if you get a good job you know uh there's still a sense of sort of um you know jake and i are in a, a capital reading group and we just read one of my favorite chapters which is cooperation uh where you know you you even in a capitalist uh, system, you, there are ways where workers collaborate and actually um, are able to produce things together. And I think there really is a germ of socialism in that. Uh, And what it seems like people are fighting for there is is, um, to be able to, you know, go to work and actually have some semblance of humanity and joy, you know, Uh, whether it's, you know, they're thinking of. You know, I remember if you have a good job, you 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 think about going to work, and you get like a little excited, like I I'm I'm looking forward to goofing off with this person or flirting with this person. Uh, you know, again, that is still within a, a terrible capitalist system, but there's there's at least something you can get out of work, some sense of fulfillment, and uh, they're being robbed of of that. Um, so it seems like that's really what this this struggle is about in many respects is just being able to be human and and be a person and have some semblance of dignity with, with your work. Uh, but one thing I, I did want to ask about too was, um, so Alabama is a right to work state as are a lot of states in the South and, and, you know, all over the country. Uh, and one of the things that's come up in these captive audience meetings is the anti-union people will say like, oh, they, they take, they make you pay dues, uh, right. Which in you know, that used to be the way unions work in, in most of the country, right? You no, know, even if you don't want to join the union, if you work there, you got to pay dues. But because it's a right to work state, you don't actually have to pay dues, which has come as sort of uh, become sort of a uh, an effective rebuttal against that. And, and that's specific to right to work uh, law. Uh, is that sort I mean, obviously, we're all against right to work. But is that sort of a blessing in disguise that you can at least uh, rebuff that with the fact that because it's Right to work, it's it's not actually making people uh, join a union and pay dues against their will.
0: It's a really interesting question, and and I guess like so so by way of answering it, I just wanted to like do one quick parenthetical follow up to the sure. point you were just making because I thought it was a really important point, right? Like where Jennifer Bates, um, you know, was talking about, yeah, like we we deserve to be human and we deserve to be treated like we are human. Um, and this is something that Michael Foster, big Mike, um, you know, has also been saying, right. He's like, it's not, it's not just about like, like, obviously some jobs are still going to be shit. Like I I used to have to work at a, at a factory where we sifted through the blood shit and piss covered laundry from hospitals in the area. There's no way to make that job any like nice. Right. It was awful. Um, (laughs) but it still has to be done. Right. But there's a way to do it. That doesn't, Kind of grind workers into dust that doesn't kind of um, exploit them and that the, the the point that I wanted to make was like um, because you, you mentioned that Jennifer said that you know yeah on the job it's so it's so grueling but then on your day off quote unquote you're just so worn out that you just sit there on the couch and can't even do anything and so it's also a question of being able to be human outside of work. Right. Right. Um, you know, like like I said, like, you know, we're not naive. We know that some jobs are still going to fucking suck, but like, yeah. the, the you know, but they still have to be done. But there are still ways that we can protect working people and, and honor the humanity of all workers. Right. By making sure that they're not just doing that work to pay bills and pay rent and go back and do it again. Right. Big Mike has been saying this a lot. He's like, we deserve to be able to take vacations. We deserve, you know, to take our kids to see the beach for the first time. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, we deserve to enjoy our breaks uh, and enjoy our time off and not be so exhausted that we can't even do anything but rest and recover for the next day when we have to go back into it. So I, I just really want to underscore that because I think it's a really effective part piece of messaging from the folks down there. But more than messaging, it's just a really important um, principle that I think we should all get behind. Now, oh. to, to go... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh,
1: I was just going to say, a super obvious, quick uh, uh, observation here too about the, the dues thing. You know, are dues restrictive to forming a union? Uh, is it easier to, you know, make one without dues? The dues give power to the union crazy idea having money is where power comes from right it's much harder to make a strike happen if there is no bank of like cash that goes out to everybody
2: no yeah i'm, I'm all about dues but it, it just like that point of you know that 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 propaganda line of like oh it's this you're forced against your will into this thing that yeah you don't have have enough say in which is bullshit but does the fact that they are right to work and that isn't technically true in a place like Alabama make it easier to get in the union but on the other hand will that you know if they already unionize uh is that gonna pose some problems with the fact that it is a right to work state and, and not all workers are gonna want to pay dues or even join the union
1: yeah I'm just <laughs> saying like you don't have to galaxy brain everything sometimes you are saving money for a reason
0: <laughs> <laughs> right well um have you guys ever seen that That I think it was like late 90s That movie The Edge with Anthony Hopkins Never Where, heard of it I don't think It's so. like Anthony Hopkins And Alec Baldwin get like lost In like the the Canadian wilderness Or something and then a man eating bear Starts hunting them um, You know it's, it, it's a ridiculous movie It's a ridiculous movie but it's like one of those ones That caught me at that like Junior high era and I was just so Fascinated by it but anyway I bring it up for a reason Because uh, when Anthony Hopkins, right, this old, he plays this, like, I don't know, wise billionaire or whatever, uh, these guys have no wilderness training, right? And so when they have this bear after them that's already, like, eaten and killed one of their their, uh, party, they're trying to figure out how to defend themselves, right? And so they go back, the way the movie paints this, right, is they go back to kind of the ancient native kind of strategies for hunting bears, right, and, and defending ourselves against bears, which is... You, sh- you get these sticks, you sharpen them, you burn the tips so that they're durable, and then, like, you get the bear to chase you down into a ravine, and you back yourself up against a wall, and the bear raises up on its haunches and goes to lunge at you, and you then you prop your spear up so that the bear actually uses its own weight to impale itself, right? Oh, and like and- judo. <clears throat> Sure, yeah. <laughs> right. But like the 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 reason I bring that up is to kind of connect it to Andrew's point, which is that right to work, a racist, shitty, anti-worker um kind of movement, we could call it from the conservative a conservative movement that is that is systematically uh again empowered the bosses and disempowered workers for a long time. And like right to work as a as a slogan. Right, it it does not mean what you think it means. It was crafted mm-hmm. in a lab to to <laughs> convey something that is the opposite of what it actually does. Right, but to Andrew's point, right to work has been one of those things historically that is built up the bear of the that is the bosses. Right, that is like places mm-hmm. like Amazon. It has been a muscle in this massive enemy that is hunting us, that is that is chasing us, that is exploiting us. Right. And so in this case, you could see that as like, uh, you know, to, to, to flesh out this kind of um, <laughs> loose analogy, that could be a way in which um, Amazon's ant- union busting rhetorical tactics are actually part of the thing that is impaling it because it doesn't have the weight that that it wants it to have. So I think, Anders, the, the connection you're making there, right, is that Amazon is trying to convince its workers not to unionize by saying, look, like, they're basically admitting that, like, look, you you struggle to get by enough as it is, even on the $15 that we pay you. Mm-hmm. So imagine taking $500 more out of your paychecks uh, and going to the union. And they paint it as if, like, that money just disappears and you see no benefit. Right. Uh, to, to Alex's point, it's not like the dues actually give the union the power to represent workers and fight for workers, yada, yada, yada. Um. So uh, Amazon has been telling these workers, oh, these dudes are going to come out of your wallet. It's going to keep you from being able to buy more uh, and do more with the wages that you make here at Amazon. But because of right to work, because of the shitty ways that it has been set up to right to work, the whole point of right to work is to throttle unions and make it harder for unions to even happen in the first place, and then to even do uh, what they are supposed to do if they are um, kind of voted for by the workers, Um, because right to work means that you cannot kind of legally mandate that all the people, all the workers represented in the bargaining unit have to pay dues, but they can still they still get the benefits of the collective bargaining whether or not they pay those dues right mm-hmm. so it basically creates an incentive for workers uh to benefit from the union um but it gives them the incentive to not have to pay dues which prevents the union from being able to do what it wants to do and so on and so forth right so that's that that could be a case where amazon now like the bear impaling itself is trying to use this muscle that, of right to work um, to scare people about the $500 that will be coming out of their paycheck. Um, but it has impaled itself on the bare <laughs> fact that like, well, if I don't want to pay union dues and that $500 is not going to come out of my paycheck. So why shouldn't, why I, I might as well just vote for it anyway. Right. Mm-hmm. So, it, so it is a, a, an instance where, uh, one instance where right to work, uh, bullshit is actually kind of working against Amazon. I mean, it doesn't justify it. That does, does, doesn't make right to work. Okay. But in this instance, mm-hmm. like Andrews is saying, it, it does it does kind of undercut the union busting that Amazon's trying to do. Right, right. I just
1: want to say, just quick interjection. As a helpful a political analogy as it is, bears do not hunt like that. They only do that <laughs> right. when they're very distressed. They're territorial animals. If you're being attacked by a bear, you have infringed upon the bear. Stay away from bears.
2: I've heard, I don't, I have no idea what to do. If I'm a, if I ever encounter a bear, cause I've heard so many different things about uh, some people it say bears to, bear to bear. Okay. Yeah. But you need to carry around a guidebook, I guess, to bears because some you're supposed to yell at others. You're supposed to play dead. Others supposed to run. Like there's no I
1: believe it is the big ones you have to play dead and the smaller ones you yell at. Okay. Yeah. So, I remember just use your guts there.
0: <laughs> the, uh, the one, time i went to alaska uh, with my family um we were we had this guy kind of like driving us around the yukon in like a suburban he was like a very low low budget guide but he was great and we were asking him about bears we're like what do we do if we see a bear and he was very kind of uh blase about it he's like oh well you know if it's a black bear you can take him just go up to him and sock him (laughs) in the face right um and so then yeah and he's like but if it's a grizzly bear grizzlies because they're more medium sized tend to be more aggressive yada 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 and then I was like what if what if a, a like a kodiak comes up to you he's like well kodiak you just lay down and hope that he nibbles on your head a little bit and doesn't like the taste. He's like, that's all, that's the best you can do. (laughs) Right. But yeah, to, to Alex's point, the edge as a movie may not be the most accurate uh, (laughs) depiction of what to do if a bear is chasing you, but the analogy from the edge is the best way that I could describe what what Amazon is doing.
1: (laughs) Oh, the spear thing. I mean, that was very insightful. I'm just saying, I just don't want people to go around. Learning, looking, and finding bears to learn from them themselves—that's not what the show endorses. I
2: mean, I personally carry uh, toilet paper with me in the woods in case I run into a charmin bear because I've been taught (laughs) that's the best thing to do. (laughs) Um, Two quick questions before. Well, I I do want to ask very briefly. Do you think this has a? How strong are the odds that they are going to unionize in Bessemer?
0: Oh, boy. Well, you know, if if the past few years from Donald Trump getting elected to COVID-19 have taught me anything, it's to be very uh, humble with making political predictions. Uh But, you know, I will say um, because like, you know, again, like everyone down there in Bessemer is not naive. They know um, that Amazon is pulling out all the stops um, to disencourage workers from voting for the union. Uh, we've heard stories um, reported by some of the people I mentioned earlier, right? Kim Kelly, I think broke the story that Amazon had actually changed one of the traffic lights right. um, coming out <laughs> of its uh, fulfillment center. Because I, I, I went and stood, I stood by the RWDSU organizers who sit at those uh, exits during shift change because workers will be leaving the parking lot. They'll be driving down to these different uh, traffic lights. And uh, that is the moment when organizers off Amazon's property can come up to them and say, uh, like the workers will say, oh, they told us this, right? They 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 scared us about this. What do you have to say about that? And they'll give them some, pilots, they'll answer their questions. So Amazon actually changed one of the lights. It, got the, it petitioned the city to change one of those lights so that as soon as a car rolls up, the light turns green and the organizers don't have have time to go up and, and talk to them, right? Amazon says that, that it did that uh, because there was traffic buildup there are like five exits to this massive uh, fulfillment center. People are leaving kind of at different times. There's no traffic buildup. That's bullshit. Yeah. But on top of that, uh, workers are getting anti-union text messages every day. Um, they're, they're anti-union uh, messages in bathroom stalls. So like it's it's like people feel like it's really invading their privacy. Their uh, mailers were sent out encouraging workers to drop off their ballots at a, at a uh, a post box, um, you know, the, a mailbox that just appeared on Amazon property, like in front of the entrance. And so workers feel like, well, if I go up and drop my ballot in there, they're going to be watching me. So it feels like a very, it feels like an intimidation tactic, right? On top of that, you mentioned the captive audience meetings that uh, this these outside consultants uh, with management are holding to really try well, to scare they, people. Didn't they stop
2: doing those? Is that they, they started to that's what uh jennifer was saying that they they don't do them anymore or or she um was able to like to rebut enough stuff to where it didn't make sense for them to keep doing it or or are they still doing the captive audience meetings
0: so um one there are a couple of different stories here there's one where like people like jennifer um have reported that when during these meetings when when workers who knew how to rebut the union busting talking points would stand up and say that point is bullshit. Um, you know, you're not telling the full story. There's there's at least one story of, of the people running these meeting calling them up taking a picture of their badge number and then sending them out of the meeting. Um, so that they could, you know, they didn't, they wouldn't have them back in the meeting to rebut their points. Um there are also stories of of managers and these consultants walking around to the stations with like a, a water bottle and a, a bottle of coke and saying hey can I take 5 minutes of your time to scare the shit out of you for, uh you know so you don't vote for this union kind of thing. Oh they um, should so phrase it differently. Right, <laughs> Yeah. they should work on that. So there's a lot of union busting going on and and you know the the vote counting like I said begins on March 29th. Um people are expecting that Amazon's going to contest some, some ballots. So it's going to be a a dog fight. And, you know, I guess it's one of those things where like with, I guess, the Bernie Sanders campaign, you, people know and expect that there are going to be underhanded tactics from the party that holds most of the power. And, and you would be wrong not to have a healthy kind of fear of that and skepticism of that and, and try to plan for that, you know, Randy Hadley, the the president of the, of the RWDSU South Council there in Birmingham, told me, he's like, this is David versus Goliath. And what that means for us is we have to punch Goliath in the face every day, because if we give it an inch, it is going to kind of undo a lot of the work that we have been doing. So that's a long winded way of saying that workers there are very hopeful. I noticed that people were saying, Not when we, not if we win, but when we win, this is going to happen, right? Um, So I do think that the fact that like, for instance, the workers were able to cross the 30% threshold signing uh, union authorization cards pretty easily at such a big factory. Mm -hmm. Like that's something that scared Amazon because normally it's a struggle even to get to that 30% threshold of people signing those cards in Bessemer. That wasn't the case. Um, so there, there are a significant number of people there. But again, it's, it's 5,800 people. Um, they're getting a lot of pressure every day from Amazon. They're, they're getting um, fears put in their mind that there are going to be layoffs, that even the plant will close down, right? That um, the union is going to do all these horrible things and, and, and yada, yada, yada. So it really is a question of will, right? And it's a question of kind of keeping um, the public support up of, of combating that that anti-union propaganda that workers are getting every day of showing support for those workers and the union not just in a kind of nominal oh this is a cool thing happening way but actually in a substantive substantive what do you need kind of way a way where we can show support and solidarity um for these workers as human beings who deserve you know the dignity and protection that a union brings, not just because it's a shiny new object in the political discourse of our day. And I think that we have been seeing that. Right? And that gives me a lot of hope that this union drive will be successful.
2: Right. Yeah. I mean, it, the fact that they, uh, Amazon was not able to make sure the election was held uh, at the directly at the workplace, I think, is a huge plus, right? Because they have less uh, ability to, to intimidate or, or coerce people like casting their ballots uh and they're further away from the ballots which is a pretty crucial thing too uh and also like if this i mean as bad as biden is the fact that this is being held now and not you know six months ago i think makes a pretty big difference because of the nlrb right they you know it's it's not that NLRB we ultimately want but it is uh not one that's actively trying to destroy the labor movement so that i think is is a plus right and this is the reason a a lot of socialists um the only reason a lot of people i know uh voted for biden anyway um step up it's a step up for sure (laughs) right uh but one thing i do want to make sure to ask you about before we get out of here is uh an episode you did recently with uh no evil foods uh (laughs) which is a uh or you did about no evil foods anyway which is like a vegan meat A company in North Carolina, which is like this, has a very social justice oriented brand, uh, but not necessarily social justice oriented practices. Uh, They busted a or prevented a a union from forming, Um, and not only that, the the episode you did was taken off uh, Libsyn, right? Because they were able to to talk to the to the algorithm people and and get it removed. Uh, for really no justifiable reason Uh, but 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 what happened there I mean this is a company by the way I think you said they have a Che Guevara sausage right yep Uh,
1: (laughs) Che Guevara famously loves he loved sausage
0: yeah Che Guevara famously loves vegan sausage and union busting
1: (laughs) you can always catch him at a at a ball game munching one of his famous Che Guevara Franks. <laughs> yeah. I
2: mean they say union busting is disgusting, but so is the the food here, it sounds like um at least to a to a omnivore
0: like me. Uh but but Got you, him.
2: <laughs> you've been able to uh get the episode back up. Is that right?
0: Yeah, no, I appreciate you asking about this. Um because it's um you know it really is kind of I think a bright spot uh you know in you know we we all we all hustle in independent media, right? We do, we do all this work because we believe in it. Right. We don't, mm-hmm. none of us think that like, you know, one podcast is going to save the world, but we, there's a lot of time and labor that goes into it that we do because we, we care about the work that we do. And um, you know, we, we, we want it to be something that's good and useful and entertaining and enjoyable and informative for, for people who watch or listen to it. Right. And, and in the case of this episode that I did back in the summer, Uh, Yeah, I interviewed, uh, I believe it was four um, former employees of No Evil Foods, actually it may have been five, um, who were involved in the union drive at No Evil Foods. They were trying to unionize with the UFCW, uh, and they were unsuccessful. And uh, No Evil Foods, like you said, is this kind of vegan meat company that really bakes into its messaging and its branding right this this notion that it's uh, that it's progressive, that it's punk rock, right? That this ain't your mama's vegan meat company. I don't know. <laughs> you know? But, um, you know it's 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 very much part of the branding, right? That it is more progressive uh, or even left leaning. That all came to a crashing halt as soon as they got wind that their workers were trying to organize immediately, right. as the workers told me, as they describe on that episode, they said immediately the mood changed, right, and and um, suddenly it was kind of, you know, it was hostile, there were these captive audience meetings, where our punk rock, uh, you know, Tattooed and 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 um, pierced uh, bosses were suddenly scaring us, you know, and and using. We talked about Kirsten Cinema, right? Right. It's one of the grossest things is that the bosses there, this progressive quote-unquote company, were trying to again use progressive talking points to to be union busters, right? They tried to use like um, sexual assault. They tried to say like, you know, the union's going to make you work with your harasser, right. You know, like you're not going to be able to come to us and we're not going to be able to handle it. Right. You know, or the union is just like uh, run by a bunch of old white guys who don't care about, you know, workers of color, stuff like that. Like it was very, it was very gross stuff. So I would highly encourage folks to read up on that, on that failed union drive and all the union busting that the shitty company did. But to talk about the the podcast episode itself, what we did was uh, we we worked with um, some of the workers there who had actually recorded um, audio from those union busting meetings. And North Carolina is a one party consent state, so it was legal to obtain those um, those recordings, right? Because if the person who's recording them consents, that's all you need, right? So then they sent us, um, you know, the the original files. And we actually put up, uh, we started that episode on No Evil Foods with like eight minutes of clips from the union-busting yeah. meetings, which people told me they're like, I've never been as angry before listening to a Working People episode as I was listening to that one. Yeah, I just um, watched something. Yeah, and, it, and, it, and, and so then afterwards, No Evil Foods... Um, you know, filed a digital millennium was it digital millennium copyright act a DMCA takedown request with Libsyn, saying that we were infringing on copyrighted material, and then Libsyn immediately took the episode down, uh, and we had to kind of really like fight and petition to to get it put back up. We had to prove that um, No Evil Foods was was not only uh, didn't have a legal grounding under fair use, right? You know, to to claim that like we couldn't use these recordings right that would be like you know a news um you know a news channel not being able to use recordings of politicians right you mm-hmm. know like that the, the fair use allows us to kind of use this stuff to report on and the context of the episode was very clear how we were using those recordings and it wasn't just us right it was uh dixieland of the proletariat another great podcast they got their episode taken down um the industrial worker the uh the the publication um they, uh, I think it was Andrew Miller. Uh, he, he had an article that was taken down. Uh, Lauren Gurley at Vice had posted um, uh, recordings from there, and they got them taken down from Vice. Right. So, so this this progressive company was doing everything it could to hide from, to to basically abuse copyright law and use it improperly to try to keep the public uh, in the dark about its union busting efforts, which is just so gross and it pisses me off so much and it makes me so glad that we as a group, right? As a group of uh, we were working with the workers and with um, you know, the the, like I said, Dixieland of the proletariat and, and other kind of media folks. Um we got support from uh you know some really great kind of um legal, legal uh entities who who were kind of giving us kind of advice. <clears throat> um, and we were able to uh, basically defend ourselves and point out that No Evil Foods was full of shit that they were even using. They were even lying, right, um, mm-hmm. in their takedown request. Like, they actually used a fake name to file that request. Um, huh. and, and Libsyn had actually said, I've never seen anyone file a, a DMCA takedown request using a fake name before. Like, this, this blows my mind. Um, so we were able to get the episode back up, as was Dixie Dixieland of the Proletariat. But, um, you know, the fact of the matter is that um, the union busting efforts was still successful. Those the workers that I talked to uh, were still out of, you know, they, they weren't working there anymore. And it's been a year since um, that failed union vote. And, and there's still a lot of pain there and a lot of injustice that needs to kind of be uh, addressed. And, and No Evil Foods needs to be held accountable for what, they're, what they've done.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, if if you're listening and, and in the midst of eating some vegan meat, uh throw it away if it's no evil foods. Don't buy their don't buy their stuff. Not that, that you know, ultimately with uh the this isn't about consumer choices, but hopefully there will be another union drive there and, and maybe in a, a boycott to, to go with it. Um I do want to end on sort of a positive note, if that's all right. Uh, very briefly. There is uh, obviously we didn't get the $15 minimum wage put in the COVID relief package, but there is a drive now nationally to pass the PRO Act, uh, which could change the game for labor unions and the working class across the country. Uh, Just as we're rounding out here, what what are some of the things that the PRO Act will will do and uh, what are the odds that you think it'll pass?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I think uh, I appreciate the the way you frame the question, too, because like um, this has been another adjustment for me uh, going from then being more of an independent media producer to being the editor in chief of, of, a, of a nonprofit news network. So now I have to be very careful about endorsing like uh, okay. legislation or <laughs> stuff like that. But I can answer the questions you asked me. Right. Like yeah. what it will what would it do and what it, what uh, hope does it have of passing? Right. But, uh, you know, I guess. First thing I would say is that at Working People, we actually did a special episode uh, about a month and a half ago with members of the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades. It was a really great episode on the PRO Act and what it would do and, and why what it would mean for workers and organizers on the ground. So I would highly encourage folks to check that out. Um, but, but, you know, like just to kind of distill some of what we talked about. The PRO Act is, is, and would be, you know, a truly monumental shift in labor relations in this country. And, and it would, it would, it would undo. I mean, it's not going to it's not a silver bullet. It's not going to solve everything. And and the, the um, you know, movement, the working class movement that we need to build is going to take tons of mobilization from the grassroots up. It's not going to be made from some legislation that's kind of sprinkled down from the top. But, you know, workers and unions are really behind the PRO Act because they know how significant it would be and how much uh, more power they would have. Uh, in the workplace and with their organizing if it was passed. First thing to note is it would uh, it would repeal right to work nationwide, right? That in itself should be enough of a reason for people to be interested and invested in this legislation. Um, but, you know, as, as uh, Jim Williams, the general vice president of IUPAT kind of told me, you know, it's like it would also, um, you know, make it a lot easier for workers to organize. It would uh, make it it would give us more of an ability to hold companies accountable for um, kind of union busting and uh, for retaliating against workers who were trying to organize. Um, it, it, it really does cover a shit ton of ground that we've already been talking about, right? We've been talking about why unions and workers are playing so far behind the bosses when it comes to organizing. Uh, the pro act would really kind of give a bit a, a big boost Right to workers who want to organize um, by removing a lot of those legal and institutional barriers that they face right now, um, and then you know, like you know, it it would it wouldn't undo entirely the 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 terror of Taft Hartley, but it would be a big start as far as the <clears throat> the chances it has to pass. Right, I mean, we've already seen uh, from the Biden administration and and the Democrats. Uh, who took the House and the Senate uh, in November and have summarily used that opportunity to squander all the fucking good faith that they had from the voting public, who who voted for them because they were told they would get, uh, you know, yeah, the minimum wage would be would be raised to fifteen dollars an hour you would get immediate COVID relief. $2,000 checks would go out the door immediately. And they didn't fucking do that. Yep. They means tested the shit out of it. Now they're putting conditions on it. They're doing what Democrats always fucking do, which is fuck up the bag and and, and, and spurn the very people who braved a pandemic to vote their asses in office. Um, and now they're going to lose all that goodwill immediately. And they're going to lose in the fucking midterms. And then we're going to be right back to where we were before, where the Democrats do shit. Uh, the Republicans are able to impose their will, and working people are the ones who are going to get screwed over again and again, right? So I say that to say that, like, right now, the current Democratic administration and, and, um, you know, the Democrats in Congress are, are not giving me a lot of hope. Um, however, be, because they have not made good on on their other kind of more progressive promises, right, right? Um, the one area where they could get a significant amount of of that goodwill back, right, is in labor, right, and and it's because you know Biden he campaigned on saying he's going to be the most pro union president ever, and and even though Joe Biden did not fully endorse uh, the Amazon union drive this past weekend, the fact that he came out with that public statement in support of unions and in support of workers organizing is still significant. I mean, it's it's still all rhetoric, uh, you know, and, and it's not, you know, it's not going to solve right. everything. But I mean, he still- said
2: what that like uh, Amazon is not, should not uh, be able to coerce anyone into not voting for it, which uh, to us, that's, yeah, a very half-hearted statement, but that is probably the most pro-union <laughs> statement a president has made since, I don't know, Johnson.
0: <laughs> right, in our lifetimes, at yeah. least, right? <laughs> um, and so to, yeah, to, 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 to wrap up, um, you know, I think the one thing that is important to highlight that Jim Williams from, from uh, the Painters Union kind of told me is he's like, look, we learned our lesson, right? Obama gave us a similar promise with the Employer Free Choice Act, right? He, he got a lot of support from, from unions uh, for that, and then as soon as he got in office, he dropped it like a bad habit right? So we have been burned before, we remember being burned before, and we're not going to make the same mistake again. So a lot of unions are not kind of just hoping that Biden and Congress kind of give them this gift. They are really trying to build popular support for this legislation so that they can push it through with popular bottom-up pressure. And there's a really interesting discussion that I had with kind of the, the Painters Union folks about how this means, what this means for the labor movement and and how unions need to and are kind of building bonds of solidarity with other unions, with um, other community organizations and other uh, causes for justice to build that sort of bottom up um, solidarity, that working class solidarity that has enough power to successfully pressure Congress and Biden to pass something like the PRO Act that's how they're thinking about it. That I think is really exciting. Um, but as we've seen, as we started our conversation with, right, the the ruling class is is not going to give us what we need, right? They right. they're never going to give it out of the goodness of their own hearts, right? Um, you know what did what did what did Lyndon Johnson supposedly say to Martin Luther King? Like, I know what I need to do, but you need to make me do it, yeah, right? Um, you know that's that's kind of the situation uh, here, so. Um, I guess I'm hopeful and I'm very hopeful in the um, uh, effort that I've seen from um, kind of the labor movement to, you know, build up popular support for the PRO Act. Um, But I guess I would say uh, I would not underestimate the ability of uh, Congress to disappoint us. Yeah. It has already passed. Right the first version already passed last year but it went nowhere right uh, so it could pass again um so so anyway that was one final point i wanted to make but yeah i mean it could it could pass um but uh, i guess you know unions are not kind of just going to hope that that uh politicians are going to kind of out of their own sense of of benevolence towards working people that they're going to make it a priority Because their priority is going to be fucking bombing Syria. Their priorities are always going to be like, yeah, empowering the ruling class, right? They need to be made to feel that um, this is going to be a priority or you and your job as a politician is going to be, you know, uh, you know, you you may not have a job, right? If you don't do this.
1: Do your part and scare a wealthy person in your neighborhood. right?
2: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> here's something yeah yeah one of the things i'm excited about is, is dsa the uh, green new deal campaign is uh mobilizing on behalf of the Pro Act, which is or organizing on behalf of it i should say uh which i think is really important that we you know have the environmental and labor movement sort of combined um well yeah this has been a great conversation uh where can where can people find
0: you oh shit um <laughs> oh uh, uh, <laughs> 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 um you know uh yeah i'm on i'm on um you know find me on twitter i think it's at maximil underscore alv uh follow working people on twitter at working pod uh please follow the real news network and uh donate to us because we're doing really cool shit but we can't do it without everyone's support Uh, check out my interview with Danny Glover and we've got lots more Amazon uh, union drive stuff coming out through the month of March, which is uh, I'm really excited for. Um, And yeah, I mean, you know, just, just type, type in the name. It's Maximilian with two L's, not one L. uh, And and I'm I'm sure I'll pop up, but I really appreciate Yeah. You guys uh, having me on and uh, yeah, this is a fun conversation.
2: Yeah. Thanks for doing it.
1: Thanks for coming.
0: Anders, do you have anything? Uh, Just add Andersley here
2: on Twitter. Dursley one Instagram, check out redacted tonight on Portable TV. That's my other job. And, uh, check out the Patreon. We got some good episodes. We do have, you know, so, sort of in the same a similar vein to working people. We're doing a series that I think we're going to update soon. We're going to do another installment of thank you for your service, where we talk about, uh, working in the service industry with, with service workers. Oh, um, yeah.
0: That's awesome. The more people are doing that, the better. That's really fucking cool. And I just wanted to say, Awesome. Great job. Everyone go support that.
2: Thank you. All right, Alex, you got anything?
1: Uh, you can just follow me on Twitter at Patac Jokes. I'll put all my stuff on there.
2: All right. It is finished. It's finished.